from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to Psalm 133, which is found on page 543 in the Old Testament. Listen to God's word. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in peace. It's like the special olive oil that was poured on Aaron's head. It ran down on his beard and on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Mount Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. There the Lord gives his blessing. He gives life that never ends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Our second text, like the one Josie read from Psalm 133, uh, comes from the lectionary, that set of text that is given to the church over a three-year period of time. Uh, this text in particular is from 1 John uh, chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 2, page 224 in the New Testament. Continue to listen uh, to God's word to you and to me. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we've seen it and, and testified to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be uh, different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, uh, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, Friday morning headline on ESPN.com read something like this, even a champion can epically fail. The ninth ranked golfer in the world and the winner of last year's Masters tournament, Sergio Garcia, came to the 15th tee at Augusta National on Thursday during his opening round. He had already posted a modest plus one over par for the day. After a decent shot on 15, his approach on this par five into the green came up short and he landed in the water. And so he did what was appropriate. He marked off where the ball went in. He dropped his ball and now he was hitting his fourth shot after the penalty. And it was at this point that Sergio Garcia did something that if you were told ahead of time he was going to do, you would say, no way. That will never, ever happen. The number nine player in the whole world, Sergio Garcia, hit four more consecutive shots into the same water. These weren't terrible shots. He actually landed each one of them on the green, but because he put so much backspin on his ball and because the 15 green slopes back into the water, he watched helplessly four consecutive times in a row. He watched helplessly as his ball tumbled into the drink. He took a score of 13, of 13 on one hole, eight over par. It equaled the worst score ever recorded on one single hole at the Masters tournament. Even a champion can epically fail. You know, at the end of a round of tournament golf, uh, the golfer comes off of the 18th green and they uh, do something very particular. They go to the scorer's table or the scorer's tent with their card. And as they sit down, they take it out and they begin to add up the numbers. Because if their card is inaccurate in any way, if they have miscalculated or if they've written the wrong number down for a particular hole, they will be assessed a two-shot penalty depending on the tournament. And so, so every golfer that comes off of the 18th green, they're making sure, they're going through, adding it up once, adding it up twice, going through their head, trying to remember what score they had on each hole. The scorecard is the golfer's truth of the moment and they have to get it right. And what is the final act before the golfer turns in his or her card to the scorer's table? What is the final act before they release it? They sign the card. They put their signature on it. Basically, they are confirming that all the birdies, that all the pars, that all the bogeys, that all the 13s on this card, they are all true. I'm verifying with my signature that, that this card is accurate. Friends, truth-telling is an essential practice within the Christian life. The discipline of confession itself in a spiritual sense, is like signing your scorecard. It's like putting your signature on it and, and handing it over to God or, or handing it over to someone else. First John 1.8 puts it this way, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not 
in us. Confession is telling the truth. Confession is saying, this is who I am. There's no deception here. There is no inaccuracy here. There is good here. There is not so good here. There are birdies. There are pars. There are bogeys. There are 13s from time to time. Here it is on one card. It's the card of my life. Here it is. Here's the truth. We don't stop at verse 8. We continue on to verse 9. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what the writer is saying with this second part of this uh, saying is that without this honesty, without this truth-telling, without this confession, without signing the scorecard and saying, yes, this is accurate, there can be no liberation. There can be no freedom or forgiveness, we will not be able to be released from the guilt or the shame or the burden that comes with carrying that scorecard. A few years ago, I was uh, speaking at a men's retreat in Lake Champion, New York, about two hours distance from uh, Manhattan. I I was reflecting on a a theme similar to what emerges in the body of 1 John, particularly as it relates to the, the imagery of light and darkness. And so I was talking to these men about, about light and about darkness, and I was using them metaphorically, and I, I said that darkness symbolizes the sins or the, the fears or the anxieties or sadness that we often bury deep within ourselves, that we try to keep hidden for one reason or, or another, that we, that we keep the scorecard flipped upside down so not even our eyes will see what it says, let alone someone else, let alone God. But I, but I said that if we keep that scorecard over, if we, if we live in the darkness, if we don't reveal these things, if we don't speak the truth about the good and the not so good about our lives, then we won't open ourselves up to a gift that God wants to give us. And that gift is freedom. That gift is liberation. That gift is a fresh start. That gift is redemption. That gift is reconciliation, wholeness, mercy, and love. If we don't reveal these things, if we don't move these things from darkness to light, then we will not receive these gifts that God wants to give us. So I finished my Friday night talk, and and there was a man on this retreat. He was in his uh, late 40s, and he was invited by his son, who was in his early 20s at the time. Now, the son was the person of deep faith. This young man had a, a deep and real faith, even though he grew up in a household that had no faith at all, not even Christmas and Easter. No faith at all. And through friendships in high school, this young man developed a faith and joined a church and became a follower of Christ. And he wanted so desperately for his father to know the good news that he himself knew in his own life. You see, the father had just been released from prison after spending time away for a few years. His crime was pocketing some investors' money in a startup that he was launching, a pretty successful startup. He wasn't hurting for money, but, but he took some of the investors' money that was meant for the company, and he, he put it in his own pocket, and he was found guilty of embezzlement and fraud. And although they had never talked about it one-on-one, the, the son knew that his father had 
had long since struggled with alcohol addiction. The son believed that the father used this as a, as a coping mechanism to keep the scorecard flipped over, to keep burying in a deeper and deeper way the regret and the pain and all the places where he felt shame for being a bad father and a bad husband and a thief and all these things that he internalized. Well, at the end of this three-day retreat, uh, the leaders and the organizers of the event, they, they gathered in front of, of a stage similar to this. All the men were sitting out here, and they, they, they gathered up in front, and the leaders were stationed, and, and as men were about to leave, they could come forward and receive prayer. And, and I was standing in line, and, and this man, this father, he, he came down in my line. And with tears in his eyes, he told me the story that I just told you. And then he went on. He said, after the talk you gave on the first night about how we bury things in the darkness and the only way we're going to receive God's grace is if we actually tell the truth about those things and we bring those things to light. He said, after that talk, I grabbed my son by the arm and we went out to my car. And I opened up the trunk and I showed him the two cases of beer that I had brought that I was going to drink by myself over the weekend in secret. And I looked at my son and I said, this is my darkness. This is what's prohibiting me from receiving God's forgiveness and grace. This is impeding me from being reconciled with you and being a better father and being a better man. And he said, I, I want God's forgiveness. I want to bring this out into the light. I, I, I want to feel God's liberation. And he said, I felt it. He said, we lifted up those, those cases of beer on this campus of this Christian retreat center. And we went into the woods and we opened each and every one of them and we poured them out. And as each ounce dripped out of every can, I felt as if there was more room in my life to receive God's gifts of grace and power. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, I think it's obvious that these words are applicable these words carry some weight for the individual life of faith. I mean, I think for most of us, we receive these words in an individualized basis. What I mean by that is to say that, that this instruction about keeping an honest scorecard falls on our hearing as an individual call, that we individually should be honest about what's in the trunk and what's on the scorecard. But let me also suggest to you this morning that perhaps these words move beyond the individual Christian life. That perhaps these words also should be applied to the corporate life, to the church in its particular form in the world. Let us remember that the letters of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, are not written to a single individual. They're actually written to a whole community. And with this in mind, I wonder if 1 John 1.8 may take on more of an expansive role in our faith. Because we, we note that the text 
The text does not say, if I say I have no sin, I deceive myself and the truth is not in me. This is not a, a person who is singling themselves out in a refusal to sign the scorecard, so to speak. What is more, the writer does not say, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. The writer does not present himself or present herself as some sort of superior sage, right? Standing over the recipient of this letter as one who knows something that they don't know. 1 John is neither if I say I have no sin, nor is it if you say you have no sin. It reads, if we say we have no sin. This instruction, perhaps, is not just for the individual, nor is the writer actually excluding himself or herself from this charge. Everybody is in this together in a unified call that we collectively confess, that we collectively as a body pursue honesty. Collectively, as a church, we tell the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. To keep this scorecard analogy going, as a community, as First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, in our 170 years of existence, we've made some birdies. Heck, we've made some eagles. We've made some pars. We've made some bogeys. And truth be told, we've made some 13s. So as we hit the home stretch of this sermon, the back nine, if you will, it's really like the last two holes. We may wonder what's at stake if we, if we think of this call to honesty in a collective way as a church. What is required of us as a community? If we're called to confess our sins as a whole, as a larger body to a God who is nonetheless faithful and just to forgive us. The first thing we can say is this, that the church as a whole can sin. Sin is not just individual. Sin can be corporate. As a whole body, we can get it wrong. As a whole body, we can get it Right. Let me use this as an illustration. Uh, in our response to our long-range strategic plan, uh, the session of our congregation voted to hire an Atlanta-based branding house to come in and to help us tell our story more faithfully, or probably better said, to help tell the story of God in and through this church in a more effective way. And I'm not talking about being effective and passing on information that you need to know, but what I'm talking about is the transformation and our life together, talking about what God is doing in our midst and for the world. Our leaders have discerned over the last couple of years that we're not good at this, that we haven't been excellent in the ways in which we have told our story. And so the results of this process with this company called Matchstick are going to be presented to session in the coming months and unveiled to the larger congregation soon thereafter. And I'm excited uh, to see the fruit of this labor. But one of the exercises that Matchstick led uh, us through, the staff at Matchstick led our team, it's some staff members, some elders, and some at-large members on this team, was an exercise to create a brief paragraph 
that captures who we are. So they have done their investigation, they've done their research, they've done interviews, and, and they wanted to present to us a very brief and concise paragraph that lets people know who we are, to introduce them to the church. And when we first, when our team first read the paragraph, we were sort of feeling like we should pat ourselves on the back. I mean, it was all birdies. It was all birdies. We were great friends to the temple, our Jewish neighbors, since the 1950s when their campus was bombed, even until today. It, it talked about how we've had members that have been leaders in the civil rights movement and other social movements throughout the years within our city. It says stuff like how we've consistently sought to serve our neighbors and the poor and the vulnerable among us in this city and in partnerships around the globe. It talked about how we as an urban church made a conscious decision when many churches were moving out in the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s when they were leaving the urban area for the suburbs, that this church made a decision to stay in Midtown. It talked about how excellent our worship and teaching and our preaching was. And it went on and on in this brief little paragraph. And we thought, this is good. But then we had a moment collectively, I can only explain it as a movement of the spirit because our team, our group of staff and elders and, and lay people, as we were reading this, something happened. We were invited in this moment into a deeper tension that comes in talking about God's faithfulness throughout your storied and substantial history as a church, while at the same time not ignoring or whitewashing the places where there are higher numbers on the card or where there's beer still in the trunk. Do you know what I mean? We have a wonderful story to tell as First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, and we should tell it. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. For we haven't always treated the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized with respect and dignity. We haven't always stood with the stranger or the refugee or the orphan or the widow. We haven't always stood with children or on the side of life the way we should have. We haven't always been on the right side of God's history when it comes to racial or gender or religious equality. We haven't always been accessible to those with disabilities of various kinds. We haven't always been hospitable and inclusive to those who simply want to be a part of this church. We, always, we haven't always, rather, taken the righteous path. And even today, we are not faultless. And by naming these bogeys, or the 13s on our scorecard, by opening up the trunk, only then do we become the church that God wants us to be. Only then, when we tell the truth about our history and our current reality, when we confess the places where we've missed the mark of God, only then, when that's brought to light, can God's forgiveness and grace come upon us. We open ourselves up to what is called the continual conversion of the church. The church hasn't arrived. The church is filled with sinners and saints. 
And it's not just about your individual spiritual walk, your individual conversion. It's about the conversion of the church. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, the God who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This word, friends, is not just for the individual. It's for the whole church. And so let me leave you with this encouragement. My hope and prayer is that we will continue to strive to be and become an honest church. An honest church. Because I believe our honesty has a correlation with our witness to the city of Atlanta and to the world. Because what we have been called to do is to remember that God's forgiveness and grace isn't just for the whole world, it's also for us. It's also for us. It's for everyone. And when we are honest, when we practice a life that moves things out of the darkness into the light, when we practice for the city and for the world and honesty about who we are, about the birdies and the bogeys alike, what we do is demonstrate for the world what it's like to actually open yourself up to grace. And that's what the world needs. They don't need us showing off like we're perfect, like we have it all together. The world needs to know about grace because they know the world and their lives are messed up too. So we strive to be a church that is honest, a church that tells the truth so that we ourselves can be transformed by grace and forgiveness, given a fresh start, a new day, and so that the world may see that that is not just for us, but it's for them too. May we be an honest church for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. May it be so. And all of God's people say, amen.